Well, if you would please open God's Word with me to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3. As uh, Pastor Jeff uh, pointed out last week in uh, John the Baptist's ministry, right, that John the Baptist uh, was here uh, as the best man to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And as John the Baptist himself said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Well, John the writer now takes the handoff uh, from John the Baptist and runs for a touchdown with our text today. So if you would follow along with me, uh, John is driving home this point. And so listen for this before I read uh, that Jesus is above all, so trust him for life. Jesus is above all, so trust him for life. We're going to see John provide three uh, answers to three contrasting questions. The first contrasting question is, who is Jesus and who are you? The second is, what did Jesus do and what did you do? And third, did, what did the Father give and what will you give? So follow along and we're going to hear uh, John's answers to these contrasting questions in our text today. John chapter 3 verses 31 to 36. This is the word of our God. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. But he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. What is the most important question that anybody can ever answer. Philosophers think about questions like that, questions about questions. What is the most important question that we could possibly answer? Well, Jesus gave it in Matthew 16 when he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? The question is, who is Jesus? The answer to that question has implications for everything else that we could ever ask or know. And this is the primary question of the entire Gospel of John, as we've been seeing for these last three chapters. Now, often, Gospel writers are called evangelists. Why? Because they are trying to call people to saving faith in Jesus Christ and to be saved from the wrath to come. And so we begin with the first contrasting question, who is Jesus and who are you? 
Verse 31 again says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so you can see the answer, the very simple answer to those two questions where the answer about Jesus is sandwiched or, or the answer about who we are is sandwiched right between the answer to who Jesus is. Jesus is heavenly and he is above all. Now this answer may be simple, but it is incredibly profound. When we learn about Jesus and we understand that he has existed with the Father and with the Spirit from eternity past and that they will exist together into eternity future, our minds cannot grasp eternity. And as much as we would love to try to understand what it is to have God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect relationship from eternity past to eternity future, we just cannot grasp it. But as the one who came down from heaven, he has information for us called revelation. He is the one who can reveal the things that he has seen and the things that he has heard being in heaven itself. He has the exclusive identity of being the Son of God and the one who has this exclusive information. And so we will never find anyone else in the entire history of the world like the Lord Jesus Christ who has existed forever and now come to tell us the words of the Father. Does he sound like someone we should listen to? But when we think about the fact that he is above all authority, that he is above all in love, that he is above all in power, that he is above all in every way that we can even imagine, then yes, it makes perfect sense that he would be someone that we want to listen to and find answers in our lives, not looking to ourselves. Now, our big problem is that we default to ourselves. But only when we feel the incredible weight of who Jesus is, his true identity, and when we know him for who he is, is the only way we can answer the second half of the question, who am I? Well, John gives us, again, very simple answers. We are earthly, and we are below him. Who am I? I am earthly, I am below Jesus. Now here that John, the gospel writer, is referring to John the Baptist, right? Who is the greatest human to ever live according to Jesus. But even if he's the greatest human that ever lived and he stands next to Jesus, he is still far, far, far below the Son of God. And so whether he is someone who has been gifted by God to bring the message, or he's using an imperfect preacher like myself to bring God's word, it doesn't matter who he is using as an instrument. It doesn't matter the greatest preachers, Charles Spurgeon, right? The greatest uh, people that you can even imagine that are your heroes of the faith throughout all of history. Put any one of them right next to the Lord Jesus Christ and every single messenger falls very short. We are earthly 
messengers. And yet Jesus is above all, he is a heavenly messenger. Now the Apostle Paul said very simply in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven, that he is indeed God. But we are made of dust. It says in Genesis chapter 3, For you are of dust, and to dust you shall return. And when we think about trusting in ourselves, I mean, it almost gets to the point of sounding silly. Like if we know who we really are, do we believe that dirt is really going to solve all of our problems? And we're like, no. I mean, kind of when you put it like that, it does definitely sound silly, and yet we trust in ourselves. So it says that we are dust, that we are by nature creatures of dust, and yet we trust in ourselves far more sometimes than we trust in the one who came from heaven and is above all. Now we do have to remember that though we are made of dust, we're made of dust in the image of God. And so we do have value. We are, unfortunately though, people who have rebelled against our holy God. And according to our text, we are people worthy of God's punishment. And when we think about being earthly, it is not just about our physical bodies and the fact that when we die, all of us will return to dust. That being earthly also has a spiritual quality to it in the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul said in in Colossians 3, as uh, Pastor Jeff read earlier, but also in Philippians chapter 3, it says, For many of whom I have told you, And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so we see this great contrast between the heavenly and the earthly, not just the physical, but the heavenly that is spiritual and good and right, and the earthly that is sinful and destructive and evil. And only when we see ourselves in the light of God's holiness can we understand who we are apart from Christ, that we are sinners, that we are lawbreakers, that R.C. Sproul said we have committed cosmic treason. And until we understand that is who we are apart from Christ, then we will never pursue Him as Lord and Savior. We will never have a sense of our need for Him unless we know who Jesus is and we know who we are in light of Him. And one of my favorite books ever written was by John Calvin called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, he never designed that work to be a reference book. That's how it's commonly used, but he designed it as an instrument for discipleship. Calvin calls our hearts to burn with passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in the very first sentence of that work, Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes, or which one precedes and bring forth the, which one precedes and brings forth the other, is not easy to discern. Apparently, not easy to read either. But it's not easy to discern. Right? Do we begin with the knowledge of self, 
Or do we begin with the knowledge of God? Calvin's answer is yes. You cannot answer one without giving implication to the other. If you say self is above all, then by nature that gives implication that Jesus is below us. But if we say that Jesus is above all, then the implication is we are below him. Calvin also said man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends. The majesty of the glory of Christ starkly reminds every one of us that our feet are made of clay. Now, I don't know where you are spiritually. In a group of people this size, there's going to be people who genuinely profess faith in Jesus Christ, others who think they believe, and others who know they do not believe. But regardless of which category you see yourself in, every one of us are called by our God to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see where am I in my relation with God. So when you apply these ideas, this calling to your own life, we need to examine not just our intentions, we need to examine our actions. What do they reveal about who we are? Do you put Jesus above all or do you put self above all? That is the burden that we bear. So consider, first of all, your prayer life by application. Right, John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, used the contrasting illustration of the butler bell versus the wartime walkie-talkie. And so when we're coming to God in prayer, do we ring the bell asking for the Lord to bring us yet another pillow for our comfort, or are we in a foxhole crying out to our God for reinforcements? And that's why Piper said that you will never know what prayer is for until you understand that life is war. Do our prayers reveal Jesus' ways are above our ways? Do we, does, he reveal that, does our prayers reveal that Jesus' will is greater than our will? What about our priorities? The way that we prioritize our time, our talent, our treasure. Do we view our resources as ours or God's? Do you view the tithe as God's and then the 90% of the rest of it as yours? Or do we recognize from the scriptures that all of it is owned by God and he just happens to make us stewards or managers of his stuff? And so when He calls us to share it with somebody else. We're just saying, oh, okay, he delegated some to me, and now he wants me to delegate more of his stuff to somebody else, whether it's our time or our talents or our treasure. Now, we know that we're never going to pray perfectly. We know that we're never going to prioritize perfectly. And yet, these are examples and ways that we can see in our own hearts the way that self just jumps back into the limelight as quickly as it possibly can. That is our main problem that we deal with. And Jesus came from heaven to earth to bring good news to address our problem. And so we learn by our second contrasting question, the first one, who is Jesus and who am I? And the second question, what did Jesus do And what did you do? 
Look again at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent is above all. So he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now again, John's answers are not complex. Right, trying to understand what did Jesus do? He gives very, three very simple answers. He bears witness. He utters the words of God and he gives the spirit without measure. That's what Jesus does. Because Jesus came from heaven, he witnessed, first of all, majestic things. Right? He witnessed all of these things with his own eyes. He saw them and he has seen them from eternity past. Now, eyewitness testimony is some of the most powerful influence over a jury in a court of law. So what more credible witness could we have about who God is and what he is doing than Jesus himself, the Son of God? He has seen the Father face to face. He heard the Father's plan as they worked it out together. And he is the only one who has this information and the only one that can give it to us. And so when he speaks, he speaks, secondly, the very words of God. He utters the words of God. That is why Jesus was sent. He is sent as God's ambassador, representing the Trinity. Right? That he has come with full authority of our creator God because he is God. John began his gospel telling us that Jesus is the word. That the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, that the Word was God. Jesus not only heard the Father's words, Jesus is the very embodiment of that Word. And that is what Jesus did. Now, how are we to respond to what Jesus did? What did we do? We have two choices. We can either receive his testimony or reject it. Those are the only two ways that we can respond. What did you do? Did you receive or did you Reject. Now, some of you don't even remember the first time you heard the testimony of Jesus, right? When you were very, very young, maybe from birth, you being here and, you know, hearing words, you know, of the pastor preaching. And, and as you grow up in childhood, you keep hearing the testimony of Jesus from the mouths of your own parents. You keep hearing the testimony of Jesus. You don't remember the first time that you heard those words. Others of us might remember the very first time that, that we heard Jesus' word read or Jesus' word preached. And we recognize that his word is unique. And he does a work in our hearts and helps us to understand who he is. So this promise that is given is not just for church people. It's not just for ethnic Jews. The promise that's given in this text is the word whoever. right? Just like John 3.16, whoever believes in him. In this case, whoever receives his testimony, we set our seal to this. Now, we don't talk that way. When's the last time you set your seal to something? Right? That's just not a phrase that we use very often. And so we have to bring our brains way back 
right? Way long ago, uh, you might remember uh, what a signet ring is, right? Instead of signing a, a signature to show authentication of a document, there was a signet ring, right? And in the, in the case of the king, right, there'd be wax. So the document is written, melted wax is put on the document to seal it, and the signet ring, right, is placed on that document to authenticate the fact that this message is coming from the king. But in this particular text, we're the ones who are setting our seal on something. We are authenticating something. So what, how does that exactly work? Well, when we are trying to authenticate uh, what the Lord is doing, uh, we are trying to understand uh, that his spirit is at work in our hearts. And so what testimony that we have uh, that is happening within our own hearts is that we are confirming in our own hearts that God is true. We set our seal on it to say in our hearts, we believe this is true. This is certain in our hearts. Now, there's only one person who can work in our hearts so that we would confirm that in our own hearts. That's the only way that we can set seal to something is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why it says also in our text that Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit is the one who confirms all truth to the sinner's heart. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so Paul says that God also has a seal, and it is the Holy Spirit. But if Jesus gives the spirit without measure, then that gives implication that at some point he gave the spirit with measure. And that's exactly what God did in the old covenant, right? That only certain people were empowered by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Only prophets, priests, kings, and artisans are said to be empowered by the Spirit. But when Jesus came, he gave the Spirit without measure. In other words, every single believer is not only regenerated by the Spirit, but gifted, empowered by the Spirit to do the works that God has called every one of us to do. So when we think about uh, who Jesus is and what he has done, he poured out his Spirit upon the whole church in Pentecost. The whole church received that spirit without measure so that we can fulfill his mission in the world. So have you received the testimony of Jesus and confirmed it in your own heart, believing that this is not just words that are important, but this is truly the word of God at work in your heart, drawing you to himself? Have you received it from Jesus Christ as the ambassador from the Father coming with that full authority? Do you value his words as eyewitness testimony of what God has given him to say? He came to share how we can have a love relationship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. You see, with this revelation and all the texts that we're looking at, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in perfect unity one with another. And so only when we understand what they are doing, 
Only when we understand what their mission is can we understand how we are to respond to them in following after what they have called us to do in mission. And when we see the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're going to see even more in John 14, 15, and 16. Now, someday, I don't know when we're going to get there, but uh, when we get to those chapters, we're going to see the amazing way that the Father blesses the Son and the Son gives deference to the Father. The Spirit giving deference to the Father and the Son, all working together in their perfect plan. And so when we see the revelation of what God has done, We know how to respond to what we are to do. We are to receive it as the very word of God. And that leads to our last contrasting question. First, we answer the question, who is Jesus and who am I? Second, what did Jesus do and what did I do, receive or not receive? And then lastly, what did the Father give and what will you give? Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, what is John's simple answer to our third contrasting question? What did the Father give? All things. The Father gave all things. Why? It says right there, because he loves the Son. The Trinity is the only perfect relationship that has existed from all eternity. Our triune God's character is demonstrated all throughout that relationship, and it's the very best model that we have for all our relationships. Now, we are relational creatures because our God is a relational God, and we're made in his image. Genesis 2.18 says, It is not good that man should be alone. God made you the only, only be complete. The only way we can be complete is in a love relationship with him. Now that is demonstrated by the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father. The father's love is infinite and eternally generous. He gave to the son all things which includes his bride, the church. I want you to listen to the cry of the bridegroom. Last week we talked about John the Baptist as the, as the best man of the bridegroom. Now we get to hear the bridegroom and his cry to be with the bride that the Father has given to him in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All of these themes just flow through the book of John when we see the relationship of the Father and the Son, the infinite generosity of the Father, the infinite passionate love of the Son. And so when we see that, how, how should we respond to what the Father has given. What will you give? That's the second part of our third contrasting question. What will you give? And you're like, well, what can I give? I don't have anything to give. We have nothing to offer in and of ourselves to make ourselves worthy. So the question is, will we offer him our wholehearted trust? It says in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Please observe from that text 
that eternal life does not begin at death. Eternal life begins at the time the Spirit of God does a work in the sinner's heart. That if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you you won't have eternal life in the future. You have it right now. That you have new life and that that life is what the Spirit of God is at work to grow us more and more into the image of Christ. But the question is, as he's doing that, have we given over to him our whole heart? Or, as the end of verse 36 says, have we given to him our disobedience? It says in verse, at the end of verse 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, on this point, when we think about who Jesus is addressing, right, we have a whole bunch of people that know about God, know what God has said from the scriptures. And yet, just because we have knowledge doesn't mean our hearts are in the right place. And to give evidence of that, Jesus challenged the leaders of God's people And I want you to follow how all these themes from everything I've I've read and we've studied from this text, I want you to hear how Jesus unpacks this exact same sermon to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This disobedience that Jesus is talking about is God's call, his free call to saving faith in Christ. That when we reject that, he says that God's wrath remains on us. We learned in chapter 3 that whoever does not believe is condemned already. We need to understand what this means Because this call to faith in Jesus to save you does not come to us seated on cushioned chairs. If we understand who we are apart from Christ, this call to faith comes to sinners who are on death row. That we stand condemned already. And that when we think about what he is doing, when we understand who we are in light of his holiness, that we recognize this is just not a hobby. We recognize that this is not something that is just good to know for my life, that we recognize there's no greater question that I could possibly answer than who Jesus is and who I am when I put my faith in him. What does it mean to truly believe? Well, some of you may be familiar with the great Blondin. Some of you may not. You said, who is the great Blondin? Never heard of him. Okay, the great Blondin was a tightrope walker, and he uh, would would stretch a, a, a cable over some very, very high places. He went over the Grand Canyon, the Twin Towers, 
and over Niagara Falls. And so he would go across and he'd come back. And then he had a wheelbarrow and he said, do you believe that I could wheel this wheelbarrow all the way across this this line, they're like, oh, yeah. Everybody's just screaming, oh, you can do it, yeah. He's like, okay, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? And so that's the question for us. We might believe that Jesus can save, but true saving faith is us getting in Jesus' wheelbarrow as he saves us. That is true Trust. We cannot just be spectators, enthusiastic about Jesus saving sinners, but those who have transferred our trust to him alone. What did the Father give Jesus? He generously gave him all things because he loves the Son. And if we love the Son, what should we give to him but all things? Do we give him our minds but not our hearts? Do we give him our time but not our treasure or vice versa? Do we give him only parts of ourselves? What are we withholding that is demonstrating that we don't truly trust in the love of our Heavenly Father? I don't know what it is for you. Ask him to show you what it is for you. But it is by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that he will enable us more and more to identify those things that we are still holding on to, those things that we haven't given over to him yet. And as we give those over and we trust him above all, then we will demonstrate that is the essence of eternal life, that Jesus is above all. So trust him for life. Amen. Father, as we acknowledge that you are above all, that your word given to us is greater than any other word we could have received from any other person in this world. And as weak as we are, as weak as this messenger is, as foolish as we are as sinners to be distracted by the things of this world that can never satisfy. Lord, we ask you to give us a focus upon all that is ours in Christ and find our greatest joy, our greatest hope, and our greatest life showing in every possible way that Jesus is above all, that the world might see and believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.